Welcome to this episode of Athletic Training Chat. On this episode, we have Spencer Connell, who is just recently a graduate of the Indiana State DAT program. So if you want to go back to the previous episode and listen to some professors from the ISU DAT program, please do. So we want to thank Spencer for being on, but also congratulate him for completing his doctoral degree in athletic training. During this episode, he was still finishing it up, so it'll be a little bit of a throwback. But in this episode, we talk to Spencer about his experience in the DAT and how that has helped him grow as an athletic trainer, and then really focus on the industrial setting that Spencer's in and how he has been able to take a unique look at the value of athletic trainers in that setting and really um, continue to work his way to be a proponent for that and really make sure that it is something that expands into the future um, for our profession as a site that is very valuable and also highly impactful. As always, we are powered by Mueller Sports Medicine. Uh, we are in the process for where I'm at, um, ordering a bunch of their Wizard product as it has been proven effective against COVID-19. Um, also, very good on the amount of use you get out of a single gallon jug. It is very concentrated, so you can get a lot done over a long period of time, uh, which everybody is going to need as we move forward into this new world this fall. With that, please enjoy this episode. training chat we are on again with Spencer Connell uh, looking forward to having him back we we're planning to talk a lot about the industrial setting and we're thinking it could evolve from there so we'll see where this conversation takes us but before that Spencer you gave a little bit of background on the combined one uh, but due to some time constraints and whatnot we didn't get into everything so whatever you want to share give us a little bit of background of how you ended up where you are at currently yeah so as I, as I mentioned last week, I've been an athletic trainer for about, or not last week, whenever that was. Yeah. Um, I've been an athletic trainer for about five years. Um, it'll be five years up in like March, so in two days. Okay. Um, and uh, in the first two years, I was a graduate assistant um, with, at University of South Carolina. I worked my first year at a high school. Um, the second year I worked in this kind of like new sports performance, physical therapy type clinic. So I was the return to play specialist there. Um, and during that experience, I, I got a little like military athletic training taste. Um, I wasn't actually employed there. I was just shadowing at Fort Jackson in South Carolina. Um, because initially I, I had actually done ROTC in college and military was the direction I thought I wanted to go. Um, I, I knew from the get-go of getting into this profession that I did not want to go to athletics, like the traditional, quote, I'm going to use air quotes there, yep. traditional secondary or collegiate type settings. Um, you know, military was kind of where I wanted to go, but then I actually got to see it and it did not mesh with where I believe athletic training should go. And that's not a slant against what they're doing. I think what they're doing, um, serving our men and women um, here and across seas, I think is awesome. I think it's huge. 
Um, by the way, a new job posting available for the United States military in Germany. Um, <laughs> but so that, you know, I, I got that experience and I was like, ah, I'm not really driven by this. So where do I want to go? And I guess at some point I came across a, um, my preceptor from undergraduate, one of my preceptors who was, um, she was probably the most influential person in terms of keeping me in athletic training and keeping me interested and engaged and really um, trying to be progressive in nature. Um, and she actually left the collegiate setting and started working um, for a factory in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And she was like, hey, man, she, she just like called me up one day just randomly and was like, hey, do you have a second? I want to tell you about this job. And she rattled off all, like, I couldn't even tell you what she rattled off, but it was, hey, like, this is what I'm doing. And I think you would really enjoy it um, because, A, it aligns with your personal goals. And I'll talk more about personal goals um, and work goals. But at the time, like, she knew where my personal goals were. And she knew that the industrial setting was, like, her way of achieving the same goals. Um, she has a family with three beautiful kids and a husband. Um, and that has been a benefit to her. So she kind of passed that little, like she planted that bug in my brain and I started digging and doing more research into it. Um, and we actually had several phone calls from then on until I graduated from university of South Carolina and she continued to try to get me employed with her company, but things just didn't pan out because of, I don't know why. <laughs> Couldn't tell you. Um, well, I could tell you in, in a few of the situations, some of two of them, um, it came down to myself and someone else who spoke, uh, I believe it was Spanish, both situations. Um, I don't speak Spanish. That's, that's a flaw of mine. Um, and so it made sense to integrate someone who actually spoke the culture or spoke, spoke the language of the people um, and embrace that culture a little bit more to get that buy-in from the patients in those settings. So I wasn't bitter about it. So I hope I don't come off bitter. Not at all. Um, and so I just like worked random PRN jobs for about eight months out of grad school. And it was like seven months out of grad school. Um, just dedicating my time to applying for industrial jobs to get my foot in that little niche door because I knew that that was the direction I wanted to go for at, my, at that time, personal reasons. Um, and at the time I was living in Philadelphia and I got a job in Texas. So I just packed my car and moved to Texas um, where I started with GE transportation, um, a big facility where they basically broke down and rebuilt um, and refurbished locomotives as well as, um, as well as mining equipment. So like engines for those super massive dump trucks that you see yeah. in mining facilities. Um, super cool stuff. And so that was my first taste of the industrial world and fell in love with the way in which athletic trainers fit into occupational health. And I became obsessed with, you know, the fact that we're not there is just bananas to me. <laughs> um, so to elaborate on that, I, at the time in that position, I was hired into an occupational health clinic. So it was an on-site health services facility. Um, where I, I, I worked, I technically worked second shift as the solo provider, um, at the time. And I worked technically on a care team with two nurses and a nurse practitioner who kind of like overlapped between first and like split shifts. And at 
first it was it was rough because athletic trainers are so new to those settings uh, working with other healthcare providers who don't really know what we know and what we can do um, you know it it was it was tough at first because they were like oh, you don't you don't know anything um, until we started getting some musculoskeletal injuries and then then they realized oh this guy this guy is doing things that we'd never learned and um, as a result, I started to fill that niche as a musculoskeletal guy. Um, and we actually started to embrace that interprofessional collaboration where, you know, the nurses kind of em embraced more of the gen med type stuff, dealing with people with the flu and sicknesses and not work related illnesses. Um, and I was the guy who dealt with anything work or not work related that was, um, musculoskeletal nature my back hurts my knee hurts my ankle hurts yep. um, things that were not like systemic illnesses right. um, and then I changed jobs and <laughs> one thing led to another and now I'm in Indiana and I worked at a I used to work at a manufacturing facility where there was a lot of welding it was really dark and dingy and gross and now I work at a handful of different locations varying uh, they're primarily light manufacturing and distribution facilities. Okay. Um, so it's just a change in pace, but in terms of like interprofessional practice, it's not there. Um, a lot of these sites don't, they don't have anything. I'm not even full time at any, either of the three sites that I'm with currently. Um, but I'm trying, trying desperately to let, let them see the value of having me even part time to hopefully get them more time from right. either myself or someone else. I just went in a bunch of directions. Sorry. No, you're good. No, that was you have the full rundown and a unique aspect of everything. So now you're in Indiana, and we had reference in the other podcast um, part of how you connected up mentor wise and whatnot, but decided to go back and get your DAT, and you're working on that. And sounds like you're kind of coming towards the end, or no? Yep, May May 2020. Okay. I will be Dr. Spencer. Very much coming to the end. Um, yes. Kind of talking beforehand, you had talked about you know the industrials where you're happy at now, but you've got ideas of where you potentially want to go, and that's evolved. And I'm sure the DAT program played a role in that. So where where what's next then? There's a bunch of directions, um, but one of the biggest things personally. So when I entered the profession or when I entered industrial athletic training, it was really for um, selfish reasons. Uh, at the time I had who I thought I was going to start a family with. Um, I, I was really trying to like almost mimic the preceptor I told you about with the three kids yep. and all that stuff. Um, so initially it was really, really selfish in nature. Um, but as I've pursued the DAT and learned more about, you know, what I'm passionate about and, where our profession needs more attention. Um, I, I've kind of grown fond of some of the strengths that m separate or differentiate industrial athletic training from the tr more traditional settings. Um, so things like documentation, um, demonstrating hashtag AT value, um, reporting out to stakeholders and really trying to understand, uh, you know, what people want to hear. Um, maybe you've seen me on social media. I haven't been obnoxious in the last like six months, but 
I, I hold some strong opinions about the direction we're going in terms of uh, third-party reimbursement and demonstrating our value with CPT codes. I don't agree that that's the direction we need to be going. I don't think we need to be trying to filling try. I don't think we need to be trying to fill the shoes of other professions. I think we we are in uh, unique positions to demonstrate our value in other objective ways that, you know, if an insurance company sees that I'm doing 20 valuations, I may be doing evaluations, but they're not going to be, uh, they're not going to reimburse all 20 of those. There are things, there are complications with insurance and payers um, that I think just makes that battle too big of an uphill battle for us. And I think we need to be focusing resources in other directions. Um, documentation is the other one. So correlating documentation with our value in order to justify like, hey, I'm getting a paycheck. Here's me earning my paycheck rather than uh, what I feel like a lot of people do is they, they work their asses off, but in terms of objective outcomes to prove like I'm working my ass off, we lack that, right? Um, and I could be wrong, right? There could be lots of athletic trainers who do that, but I think as a whole, we have a systematic issue. So that that's kind of how my, sorry if you hear my dog barking. Oh, good. Uh, that's kind of how my uh, intention with industrial athletic trainer athletic training has kind of shifted. It was personal in nature, and now I'm trying to absorb all these things about documentation and reporting and trying to tie in mentorship and understanding how to develop people and keep people supported and engaged within like an employer company. Um, and I want to be able to take a lot of those things at some point and implement them in the more traditional settings. I want to be able to go to a high school and either if I'm the one working there or if I'm mentoring an athletic trainer in that setting, I want to teach them what an outcome measure is. I want to teach them how to implement it. I want to teach them how to track that information and what to do with that information in terms of deciding, uh, making data-driven patient care decisions um, or reporting out that objective value to whoever the stakeholders might be. Um, that's kind of a major end goal, you know, the typical interview question, where do you see yourself in five to 10 years? Doing something in that direction is where I, I want to be going now. I think I answered the question. Oh, definitely. I, <laughs> there's a lot there, which is awesome. Um, I think your take on third-party reimbursement is really interesting because I totally understand where you're coming from on you know not trying to fill shoes. God, it seems so like because we're looking at it in terms of. Could we do it in our setting in the university? Mm -hmm. Unique and not to justify being paid for myself, which I think would be interesting to show how much we could, especially if we do get recognized at the same rate as you know other professionals. But in the can we do that to then provide ourselves more resources and more staffing and show that we can help do that process, like we're kicking in our our bit to it, but I could see where in different settings that might not be as clear where you're basically, if you don't bill enough, you don't have a job. Yeah, I think, I think that's an interesting talking point because a lot of times we do see, you know, people who use that CPT code model 
it's not that they're wrong, but I think they put it into the wrong context saying, I delivered, I don't know, $10,000 worth of services yep. in the month of January. Yep. What that statement lacks, however, is under the context of A, this is predictive in nature, and B, you know, none of it was actually reimbursed. And if it was, cool, share that and make that known. Yep. Um, but I think the nature of our jobs is it's just different from physical therapy. And right. I just, I am struggling personally and I would love to learn more about it. Um, I am not educated enough on insurance and all of the intricacies of the collegiate world. Yeah. Uh, but I would, I would like to learn more about it so that we can try to figure out what the institution wants to hear and how we can incorporate CPT code into that. Cause I think that it's important to know like, Hey, I did this many evaluations, which is approximately worth this much money, or I did this much therapeutic rehab and this is how much a physical therapist does. I'm doing seven times <laughs> the work right. of a chip therapist. Yep. I think, I mean, it, it's all about context, right? Yep but we lack that context and where I think we lack that, that understanding of whose language do we need to be speaking? Um, there's a physical therapist actually uh, by the name of Mike Eisenhart who has, he's known for, he does a whole bunch of uh, more well health based activities. Uh, and he, he, his whole thing is basically keeping people out of the healthcare system. So, they might do CPT code type stuff, but a big thing for him is this quote that um, it goes, think in your own language, but speak in their language. And so it's, it's basically saying, take that information and put it out to, you know, in a way that these people want to hear it. Right. So he does a lot in terms of, uh, like he, he, he doesn't report his value in the CPT code manner either. Um, Absolutely. So I don't know all the metrics of how they do it, but it's really, really similar to some of the things that I talk about um, on social media. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I know that there's been, I've talked to just PTs that have gone out and done more cash-based stuff, and then they're now looking at accepting some insurance, but they wanted to get out of the rat race of like one patient in an hour because it's 15 minutes and I can only do so much of this. and. So we're now it's more of the you pay for the hour and whatever we need to do within that hour is what we will do in order to get the results that you're looking for. So it's less constrained. And I don't know if that's a CPT code thing or if that's an institution that you're working thing where the institution would be, we're going to go very hard line on this. Whereas, yeah. as you mentioned, like, how many people can we see and see effectively in an hour? Because that is the nature of how we kind of triage and just go. So our billing volume in theory, if we chose to go back and do that would be significantly higher. Insane. Somebody that's in a traditional hospital PT clinic where the hospital is said, we're not going to go above and beyond this because this is what the policy is. And I know some PTs that have gotten out of that world because they want to be free to do what they want to do, but they have also kind of come back around to doing some insurance billing and kind of taking whatever is deemed reimbursable. But I think it's, I think it's also interesting in the context of everything, 
you're talking about, it's, it seems it's all reactive in nature yeah. in terms of the services that are being delivered. Whereas, oh, for sure. I think segue into the industrial world um, of athletic training, a lot of what I do and what we do in this setting is preventative in nature. Yep. Uh, it's not necessarily preventative in the sense of, I developed this ACL prevention program. Um, that That is more of like a lower level prevention type of strategy. But this is, and I, I'm still learning how like this this type of example would translate to collegiate, but I collaborate really closely, not with other healthcare professionals, but with safety professionals where I use my musculoskeletal um, experience and expertise to identify risk factors that employees might be experiencing when they're on the floor working. Um, and I, I do my best to uh, provide some sort of coaching or movement um, education to make that activity better. But at the end of the day, I'm collaborating with these safety professionals to either change the pol- or change the process in which the job is being completed to make the job safer um, in terms of engineering out things that might put people at risk. Um, or we're looking at putting things in place in terms of like high level policies that basically, you know, some companies allow people to work 16 hour days, seven days a week. So getting like advocating for the patients to get a policy in place to limit their days to five to six days a week, 12 hour shifts maximum. Mm-hmm. What that does is that prevents or at least reduces the risk for um, a whole host of different conditions, everything from high blood pressure to chronic illness and diseases. Um, that's like a whole nother level of uh, prevention that I don't, think we do enough about for people who claim to be prevention experts. That's not me. Again, that's not, I, I'm, I probably sound like I'm being a, a butthole to our profession, but I think we just lack the direction on how to approach those situations. So seeing, I'm thinking out loud here, but seeing your cross country team and you're, you're like, man, why am I seeing all these chronic, right. you know, and, MTSSs or something. Okay, well, let's look, instead of just treating those, reacting to those, let's look at what are their running patterns? What surfaces are they training on? How many days a week, hours a week, mileage, mileage here, mileage outside of practice? Like, What can we do to set them up for success while still maximizing their performance to meet their goals? I think that makes sense. No, I agree completely. That's one we've talked about here a lot, you know, just like in terms of the world of like all these different professions, like you said, a lot of it's now you're hurt, come and see me. Yeah. You know, it, it's the whole concept is, is it really healthcare in quotes or is it sick care? Cause when do you go to the doctor? Most of the time when you're sick and there's nothing wrong with that, but that preventative area still seems right for taking advantage of. And I think that's interesting because here we're fortunate. I have, the ability to oversee our strength and conditioning and our athletic training. So we're able to focus on the one to build in some things to hopefully keep them out of the other, or at mm-hmm. least so they don't have to stay quite as long, you know, because they're in a better place. But um, have you done any looking at the preventative end? I know just I've had a tiny bit of experience with an OC health professional here um, when we were looking at like our fire department. And looking at like work loss data, you know, people getting hurt, surgical or not, and what that ultimately ends up costing the city in terms of 
just the time lost, you know, whether that's because it was a surgery and they're out or just because they weren't able to actually do their job and they had to be reassigned to something else. And then trying to figure out if you can get your hands on that data, like it's costing them half a million dollars a year because it's a gigantic thing. Well, you're paying for an athletic trainer or two and you're still saving money as you're maybe not going to prevent every surgical case, but there's probably a lot that you could work around. I don't know. Thoughts on looking at anything like that or. Yes. That's actually what a lot of the AT value I tried to preach is about. Okay. Um, Obviously different settings have different stakeholders who have different intentions, but a lot of what they care about in industry, um, it, it breaks down to, trying to remember all the, the, the three different branches. I basically like combine them all into one, but there's uh, what's called absenteeism. Yep. So it's um, lost time injuries. So people who are no longer at work, um, whether that's through a work-related, work-related in absenteeism is far more expensive than not work-related. Yeah. Uh, because if someone is, let's say, out on like short-term disability, um, which is not work-related type of disability, uh, the organization is paying them. I don't know all the intricacies of it, but it's like they're paying for the individual, like a percentage of the individual's salary, but they're not getting that productivity. So decreases in productivity from the employee for up to six months for short term, up to 12 months for long term. Um, but for workers comp, they're not only paying for the salary. Um, it's like 60% and some very state to state, but about approximately 60% a 40 hour paycheck um, in terms of salary, they're then also paying for loss of productivity because that employee is not there. And then they're also paying like some absurd amount of money to for increased premiums um, as well as just the fees that are associated with workers' comp insurance. Uh, at a previous factory I was with, we had a, it was like a fractured finger or something and the doctor wrote a restriction and that company initially was like, Nope, don't come back until that restrictions lifted. And I went to the safety person, the safety coordinator there. And I said, yo, we have work that this person can be doing. You know, once it's already, once it's already seen outside care, like we can accommodate things to reduce some of those costs. We ended up saving over the course of the four weeks that they would have been out. We ended up saving, I think it was about $46,000. And, th and that was like predicted, that was what was predicted um, by the, at the time it was like the financial senior coordinator or something. Right. He was like, whoa, we didn't know you worked here. Like <laughs> <laughs> crazy. Um, so how about that raise right now, huh? Yeah, if only I was employed through that. I was a, con I was a contractor. But uh, <laughs> I want to um, contract. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, it was only a 30 hour contract. So, you know, at that point, give me 40 hours. Come on. There you go. Um, so that's absenteeism, right? Like you're, you're losing productivity. You're paying all this money for wages for someone who's not even there contributing. Um, and I make that sound so terrible to the, to the individual who's sick or ill, but at the end of the day, like the stakeholder only cares about money. <laughs> um, but then you have presenteeism. So that, that is, a loss of productivity associated with an impairment or disability or um, dysfunction. So someone who has low back pain is going to work much slower. I think the average person who has low back pain uh, has an average productivity of approximately 70% of those compared without low back pain. Um, so being on site 
being in these settings where we can identify why they're having low back pain and hopefully manage those a lot of those cases, not all of them, but a lot of them on site to improve their productivity or modify the job so that they can do it with better efficiency. Um, there's a whole bunch of different directions to take that, but improving that productivity and reducing that presenteeism, um, that's another major money pit uh, where we belong on site. Um, and then prevention programs, you know, those, those just cut all the costs. Like we have, uh, there are two, two types of conditioning or work related training. One is called work conditioning and one is called work hardening. Um, work hardening is something I'm not familiar with because that's a physical therapy specific um, thing that they do. Yeah. Uh, typically, it's typically it's at least in my experience, I've seen work employees who are out of work for a long time and they go through work hardening where they are in a physical therapy clinic or related setting for eight hours a day and they're doing supervised, basically exercise in a safe job-specific manner under the supervision of a physical therapist. Um, but then there's work conditioning, which is more general in nature, and it's more preventative in nature, where we have individuals who ideally are healthy and starting a new job, and we get them for a period of time uh, as they're integrating into their new job to kind of help them condition by stressing them, by providing them with um, controlled appropriate, meaningful exercise that is going to stress them beyond the demands of the job so that when they actually get into the full 10, 12, 14 hour work days, that seems easy compared to what we do. Um, so work conditioning, we actually have some data. Um, there's some published data out there. Uh, it was like a Honda facility in Ohio, I think. I think it was Ohio, but it was Honda manufacturing. You can, you can find this publicly available but they, um, they tracked, they did work conditioning. So a work day was broken into four, four uh, periods. They did work conditioning, I believe it was for one period a day for all the new hires within the first like two weeks of their employment. And what they found was over the course of three years of doing this, um, workers comp costs cut, it was like $3 million or something, $2.5 million. Um, yeah, I mean, that alone was like, Right. Why are we not there? Why are we not doing this? Why are we not assessing the needs of these jobs, using our musculoskeletal knowledge to assess the needs of these jobs and implement programs that address those needs, um, which allows us other avenues to help prevent injuries too. But yeah, there's publicly available knowledge. If you wanted, yeah. I could try to find it. It should be on my computer somewhere, but I can like send it to you. Sounds good. Um, That'd be good to link up. Yeah, it's it's cool stuff. Super, super interesting. But we belong in industrial athletic training. Um, but I think an, a, a barrier that comes up there is we always talk about uh, physical therapists and athletic trainers not getting along because of that of that role conflict, right? I think there's also there's also some of that between us and nurses or physicians assistants. Um, but I think it's also still there with physical therapists. Um, there are some physical therapy companies who do occupational health, like without athletic trainers. Um, my very first, I'm not going to use the word mentor, super hmm, trainer person. Yeah, sure. For lack of a better word was yeah. a physical therapist. And then he basically trained me to do the job like a physical therapist would. 
Um, but there is a lot of role conflict. And I think we need to understand just like we need to in the modern healthcare system, we need to understand what our role is and how we can best serve as an ally to the other healthcare professions to maximize the outcomes and reduce those injuries and those illnesses um, for whatever patient population that we're serving. Makes sense. Yes. Well, too much sense, which I found doesn't always work when it just makes too much sense in a multitude of things. Yeah. Welcome to athletic training. <laughs> life. Life. Yeah. But athletic training is life. So. Yeah. Well, there you go. There you go. If a young professional was looking to get it, you know, coming right out of grad school and trying to get into the industrial setting, thoughts, ideas, like advice you would give that person, whether they're trying to just get into it period versus maybe even potentially starting it somewhere, you know, like initiating it. <laughs> That's a hard one because I struggled and I changed my entire life just to get into the industrial athletic training world. And part one of the projects I'm working on with my current employer right now is an educational program where we connect with um, other educational athletic training programs, whether that's the current or remaining uh, undergrad programs, pre-athletic training programs, or MSAT programs um, of all different levels. And we are basically reaching out to these institutions to not recruit them, but expose them to what it is we do on a slightly more in-depth scale without revealing any proprietary intellectual property, whatever. Yep. Um, but we're, we're basically reaching out to these organizations to educate students who, first of all, would have never even known that we serve occupational health <laughs> um, to begin with. But then we're allowing them to ask questions and start a sort of get their gears turning a little bit about the potential for other avenues outside of athletics. Um, it just so happens that we also connect them with more opportunities. Um, you know, we, we will connect them with contact information for our HR people for potential recruiting purposes, but that's not the intention of what we're doing. That's not even in our mission. It's not in our values, yep. um, but exposing people and giving people the options that I never had is something that drives me with this educational program. Like I want people to ask questions and I want them to have opportunities where they don't have to move across the country or they don't have to give up their life just to do something that's going to give them an actual steady job. Um, like work-life balance is huge because I, I messed that up and I don't want anybody else to suffer through that. Um, but I would say the biggest thing, I mean, shameless plug, a ATI Worksite Solutions is a good, it, it's a good organization with a good mission, um, with good intentions for athletic trainers and for the development of occupational health. Um, I'm really proud of like, the president um, and the vice president who are actually reaching out to competitor companies to help establish like a gold standard of care for what athletic trainers should be doing in this setting, um, a collaborative approach. Um, you know, my first job was not with ATI and I was not as happy with it. 
Um, I don't know. I'll get in trouble for saying that, but you know, they let me down and ATI did not. Okay. They're a big reason I a have these opportunities and B I have such a positive outlook on athletic training. Um, they, they understand that there are problems in much of our profession about work-life balance, workload, mm-hmm. um, all those different, like common thing complaints that we hear and they, they have things in place to make sure that those things don't happen. That's huge. That's awesome. Which is huge. Like they, they heard, um, the whole educational project came up with, from, um, my mentor within ATI. Um, so not Daria, but another, another mentor, um, and a coworker that he works really closely with. And they said, you know, we want to teach other people about what it is we do. We don't care about the growth. Like if more growth happens, cool, whatever, but we want other people to learn. And I was one of the first people they reached out to, to be a part of that opportunity. Um, because of everything I've talked about today, my passion, things I want to share. So reach out on social media. If you're a student listening to this, Um, and we can try and set something up, whether it's digitally through zoom or in person, um, or let's just talk, you know, I connected with another athletic trainer through that AT chat or AT talks thing and kind of gave them just some guidance in the direction of, um, industrial athletic training, what to expect and what I love about it. And it sounds like they're going to take an industrial job, not with ATI, but just industrial general. Um, so using social media to also network with people who are in this realm to ask questions. Don't be afraid to ask. It goes back to the mentorship. Don't be afraid to ask someone to be your mentor. Don't be afraid to just ask a question. What do you love about it? You know, why are you in it? What can I benefit from it? Here are my goals. Can my goals be met? Right. Setting. So things are happening. Don't move across the country. We'll find something. (laughs) Unless you want to, if you want to move, whatever, fine. Yeah, no, I hear, I <laughs> completely understand that one. Um, anything else specific that you want to cover in regards to kind of the industrial stuff or that we didn't get to? We talked about all the opportunities for hashtag AT value. <laughs> We talk about how we fit, uh, how we can embrace the prevention model or the prevention domain of our profession. Yep. I, I, I mean, I guess some of the other benefits to this setting are uh, pay is very comfortable. Um, pay as well as I think it's important people understand like pay should be very comfortable. If you have an employer offering you a not so comfortable fee in this setting, it's unacceptable. And you should just say no. Grant, I guess that that applies to all settings, right? But especially in this setting, I think. Totally, I get it. (laughs) Um, Another benefit of this setting is work-life balance is absolutely enforced, basically from across most organizations from a standpoint of we don't want to pay you overtime, so don't stay here. Um, but on that topic, a recommendation I would have is seek out employers who will pay hourly instead of salary. Um, I know that's like a strange conversation to have sometimes, but I was salary making just as much money as I am now, but I was working 10, 15 hours more a week. And I think salary puts you in that position 
where you, it's harder to say no. Absolutely. Couldn't, I agree completely. So I don't know if you necess, if anyone really necessarily has power to say, no, I want to be paid hourly, but um, looking for that as like almost a preference. I think that's a shift we need to approach from a bigger picture instead of like, Oh, you're paying 35,000 a year. Cool. Yeah. It's either you got to go to that shift where you're going to force them to pay you over time because then, you know, have a good justification for all your hours or very much be able to put your foot down with a salary and say, I get that there's going to be times that I'm going to be over, but then I'm going to make up for that somewhere else. And yeah, we're going to have to be okay with that. And, and that does come down to personal ownership too, but it's so hard with young professionals because we set totally them up. Agree. Yep. Completely, completely agree. Yeah. It's hard when you're young and trying to establish yourself and establish your value. I think that's one of the things I've learned over the last handful of years is figuring that out and how to show that. And then it can go a long way. I think, I think another benefit of this profession or this, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Setting. Yeah. Uh, the other benefit of it is it reframes the way in which we approach athletic, athletic training as a whole in that, you know, traditional, more traditional settings. It's, you know, I have all these people at the short period of time and then I go to coverage and then I do all this like post post coverage stuff. And we're moving away from that really slowly, but the uh, industrial occupational side of things, it's you're constantly doing things throughout that eight eight to 10 hour workday. So you're not ever like just covering something, which I hope people aren't really doing, but it helps you reframe the idea of, I need to keep moving. I need to stay uh, productive, stay positive. Like there's always things to be doing. And if I'm not doing something, then I'm not doing something right. And I think that's an important mindset yeah. that people should experience at some point. Yeah. It sounds like there's not the ebbs and flows of like hurry up and wait. That sometimes can occur in the uh, quote traditional setting, which can be a nice, but it can also be frustrating at times. So. Well, it's nice to have downtime, but then it also sucks when you can't give the 20 people who come to see you in 30 minutes, the attention that they deserve. Absolutely. And in this setting, it's easier to kind of balance that, except for when they don't show up to appointments or scheduled times to meet. <laughs> I don't know that that's an only us problem. Yeah. So that, that, as long as we're not the only one that that's happening to, I think life's good. Well, awesome. Anything else that you wanted to cover? I think this got into a lot of good stuff. Yeah, again, sorry for ranting. I, oh, I think that's perfect. It, it's something you're into and passionate about, which is exactly what we want to hear. I think having more guided questions would keep me focused, but... <laughs> that's okay. I'm good with it if you are. Um, I, I don't know. I, I'm hesitant to say, please ask me all the questions to anyone who does listen to this. But at the same time, please ask me all the questions. Um, a couple months ago, I tried to create this like... Uh, athletic training email thing where people can email me and I just like stopped responding. So if you're one of the four people who I didn't respond to listening to this, I'm sorry. Um, 
I plan on getting back kind of in that groove as I move out of school and move out of my current position right now, but shoot me a DM on Twitter and I'll at least attempt to respond. That's probably like the only way I would ever respond, Um, but asking questions and start with me. And if I don't know the answer, I'll guide them, guide whoever you are to whoever is going to answer your question. Um, But I think we need to do a better job spreading what occupational health is. So also reach out to me if you're an educational person and we'll set something up in terms of like a video video conference, or if we got people nearby, I can send someone there to talk to you. Um, yeah, that's about it. Sounds good. Shameless plug. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> I don't what's get paid for that. What's that? I said I don't get paid for that. Yeah. <laughs> I wish. Um, appreciate you taking the time again. Uh, looking forward to getting this one out along with the other one and definitely following along on Twitter as things keep evolving. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you giving me an opportunity to get my voice out there. Absolutely. We're happy to do it. Well, we will talk to you soon. I'm sure in some context, one way or the other, um, and hopefully run into you at some point here at some convention or conference. NATA 2020, uh, come to the poster presentations. I'll be talking about telemedicine. I'd love to. I'm not going to be able to make it this year, but future years, I'm going to try and make that part of the part of the deal. No promises that I'll be presenting at any other one. <laughs> Fair enough. All right, sir. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks. You too, Joel. Yep, and we'll talk to you soon.